0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Today's podcast is about something that um, is important to me because my clients face it really often and I I do too, although I don't think of myself as facing it because it's kind of my norm, which is, you know, what happens if you and your dog are going to take an alternate path into your dog sport? The, you and your dog need to go against the grain, go against the status quo, because maybe the way that normal agility classes or whatever are run is not working for you, not helpful to you, or you know maybe you just have decided to train a different way than the instructors that are available to you train. And I think it's important for us to talk about what it takes to say no to an expert, what it takes to kind of be an island who's doing things differently, and what it takes to take responsibility for your own education in a realm where few people do that, very few. So I want you to rely on three different steps. The first one is gonna be know your convictions and stick to them. So know them before you ever walk into a training scenario and stick to them. So know exactly what hill you will die on and what hill you will not. Uh, The next one is communicate. You're going to need to communicate effectively with everybody that needs to be involved with your dog training path early, often, all the time. And then lastly, you're going to need to cultivate, which means you're going to need to create the experiences that you and your dog need to be successful. Because if you're going against the grain, it is unlikely that those experiences just exist and are ready for you to show up in them. So that first one Uh, standing true to your convictions is the thing that I think it takes to state to an instructor that you are going to do something different or that you're not going to do what they just said. And I really think it's important here that I think you need to be respectful of a person whose class you are in. They, you know, they are the authority. This is their class. However, That doesn't mean that you have to do everything they say. That never means you have to do everything they say. And I try to make it really clear when I'm in a teaching role that no one in front of me should ever do anything I told them to do if they know that that's a bad move for them or their dog. And I try to make that clear in the beginning because it's something that we forget people might do. I have had people in my workshops do something I said have it go disastrously wrong, and then turn to me and say, well, I knew that would happen because X, Y, Z. And that's actually really frustrating to me as an instructor. Because if you know that what I'm saying is going to go poorly for you, please tell me that and don't do it. (laughs) And I think any good instructor is going to feel that way. They're not going to want you to try that blind cross out of the tunnel if you know you and your dog are going to collide. They're not going to want you to... Hand them the toy if you know that doing that will create conflict and stress for your dog. So know what your convictions are before you show up because you're unlikely to figure them out as you go. And it is so easy and common for you to just fall into the trap of doing what you are told because it's what we're socialized to do, especially in learning roles. Everything about our education system is fall in line, be like everybody else, do what the teacher says. And, you know, everybody hates it when I say that, but that, that is, that was my experience in the public uh, school system in the United States, which I, again, I don't blame the teachers for any more than I'm blaming these agility instructors who are just trying to help you. Everybody is trying to do their best. And when it comes to dog training and and especially agility training, gosh, half of them are volunteers anyway. So be kind and respectful, but know exactly what you will and will not do before you get there so that it's easy for you. You don't have to do any thinking on the fly. You don't have to go, oh, well, this could happen. This could happen. You just know I do this and I don't do this. The next one is communicate. And I think that that uh, piggybacks really nicely on standing in your convictions, which is that we have to then communicate what our needs and expectations are with everybody involved early and often. So if I am going to enroll in an agility class, I need to be very clear with the instructor that I may not run the course as numbered, that I may not run the course at all, and that that's all going to depend on my dog, what my dog says, and, you know, what's going on that day. Know that, you know, some instructors are going to be pushier than others and some instructors are going to want to help you get through that sequence that you know is a bad idea for you and your dog and if that's the case these conversations need to be had before you are standing in the dirt with your dog next to you and the instructor there so it's very important let's say you're walking the course when you got there tell the instructor right then this sequence um 2 to 7 just so you know i'm going to do it i'm going to do it like this i'm going to skip um going to skip 4 and 5 and i'm just going to go you know boom 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 rather than you get on course you skip 4 and 5 the instructor thinks that you walked the course wrong or, you know, made an error or whatever and wants to talk to you about that. When you're going with the flow, you're running your course that you decided to do. So you, it's, it's not fair for you to just get out there and do whatever you want without saying to the instructor, this is what I'm going to do. Or perhaps you're enrolled in my worked up or hidden potential courses and you need that dog to opt in and consent to every single rep and your instructor may not understand that the dog didn't give you the eye contact that you prompted and therefore you're going to go sit this one out and you'd like somebody else to step in and take their turn and maybe you can try again later. These are conversations that need to be had you know, via email, maybe even via phone, maybe before or after class. Ask the instructor, when's a good time for me to just run these things by you and what's a good format to do that in? Make sure that you are doing that communication piece. That side is on you. Don't just show up and wing it and do weird stuff. And expect your poor instructor who is in the dark to just sit back and watch. That's not their job and that's not what they're there to do. And, you know, in that note, in the two notes of, of the two steps we've just talked about, your convictions and your communication, be willing to pivot always but don't be willing to go backwards. So what that means is you think the dog is ready for the class that you signed up for, and you get there and the dog says, no, I'm not actually ready to do this, the dog opts out and you need to skip your turn. If you have decided that you will not run the dog that has not consented to the run, and your instructor comes in, and even though you talked about this ahead of time, says, well, why don't you try this and this and this instead, you need, to be, you need to know what your pivots are and know what walking backwards is. So do not go back. So if the instructor says, oh, just wiggle the cookie in his front of his face. Show him what you got. Show him, show him your good stuff. He'll, he'll do it if he knows what you have. That is the opposite of getting the dog's you know, true engagement. And so you're not going to want to do that. That's stepping backwards. But maybe a pivot would be the instructor says, hey, you know, the 7 to 10 bit is really easy and quick maybe give her a quick break and then if would you like to just try that shortened sequence and for a big payoff hey that sounds like a decent pivot to me right so be willing to pivot but do not be willing to backtrack and a lot of that again comes back to this overarching theme of taking responsibility for your own education and if If your instructor is unlikely to present pivots that you think are helpful, so maybe they just think a completely different way than you think because here we are going against the grain, that's going to happen, then you need to know what your goal is for that night and you need to know what your backup plans are. Do not wing it. Going against the grain and winging it, do not go together. Because if you wing it, you will wind up with the grain. You will wind up doing things that are against your plan. So you need to know your backup plans, know your pivots, and know your goals. Maybe your goal for tonight is just to get the dog to eat food on the, in the ring. Again, be very clear about that ahead of time. Communicate that ahead of time. Go give it a try. If it doesn't happen, know what your pivot is. Know what your backup plan is. And the last one is gonna be cultivate because so many of the people that I work with really struggle to go against the grain and kind of break free of the agility culture at large because they miss their community, they want their community, and they want the support of their friends in the game. And this is where I think you need to cultivate your own community. Build your team of people who are rooting for you, who are in your corner, who are not just rolling their eyes saying, you're such a weirdo. If you would just slap the dog and get the dog playing tug, you know, everything would be fine. Cultivate that community. And that might mean that all your friends are internet friends for a little while. (laughs) And it might mean that you select the people within your current circle that you know are going to be supportive and you only talk to them. And then along the same lines of cultivating your community, which does not mean, by the way, controlling your community. It does not mean making your instructor into someone that she's not. It just means find like-minded individuals, or maybe find individuals who are going through something that is similar to what you're going through, and cultivate those connections. And then remember to stay out of comparison hell, okay? Because if your dog gets its novice titles at age five or six, it still got its novice titles and if it did so beautifully with no conflict, then you won. You did so much better than that dog that sniffed on its way to the weave poles but managed to get through the weave poles. You did so much better than, you know, the dog that bit the handler severely at the end of the run because they were confused. Age of your dog or length of time that you've been working on something to me is not a measure of success or failure. The quality of what you put up, the quality of of the training and the quality of the connection between you and your dog, that's to me more the measuring stick that I want to hold myself against. So stay out of comparison hell and, and a really good way to do that again is to cultivate that right community because the community that will help you be the person that this dog, for whatever reason, needs you to be is one that will not put you in comparison hell, right? Because they, they share their struggles and not only their successes. And they shoot you a text that says, you know, Hey, here's my run today. And I felt like a total failure. And then you watch their run and you go, you know, yeah, there's some things that didn't go well, but hey, look at this part that did go well. And you can point that out to them and they can do the same for you. And that's, that's the kind of community that we all need to cultivate for ourselves because it isn't the the community that social media has built for us essentially. So if you're out there and you're going against the grain and you are just taking a different path, blazing a different trail, because it's what you or your dog needs power to you. That is to me where the real gold can be found in this game, um, in these dog games that we play is figuring out what works for you, for your dog, for your enjoyment of the game. And that might mean learning something new. And who knows, maybe you're learning exactly what you need to be learning, not attending that group class that everybody thinks you should be in. So cheers. And let's dive into some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Alexa, who writes, I have a one-year-old mini-American shepherd who has over the last few months started to destroy and eat pieces of toys if given the chance. I manage this actively in the house, but if we encounter, say, a broken tennis ball on the beach or at a play date when she's off leash, there is a 50-50 chance she will dart off to try to rip off more shreds and eat it and not listen when told to come or drop it. At home, it is possible to drop or trade for food reliably, but out in the world, it is more of a toss-up. Is there a way to train out of this, or is stepping up management the only solution? Her behavior at home really improves after our off-leash beach walks, so I'm hoping to find a way to build up skills that that will transfer over. Thank you. So, Alexa, interesting, great question. Um, I want to point out this really, really important piece, which is that you say her behavior at home improves after your off-leash beach walks. So this is likely just, um, you mentioned the dog is one year of age. This is what I call, you know, when adolescent dogs look like adults, but are not adults. (laughs) So they need as much entertainment and even more exercise than puppies do. So I like to look at this as kind of a chart. You have puppies that are very high needs, So if you have the puppy on a scale of like, on a scale of like zero to 10, zero being the dog is ancient and basically comatose and 10 being the dog is such high needs that it's a full time job to take care of them. Puppies are around, you know, a seven or an eight, like a normal puppy. And then adolescence, whatever your puppy was at, if your puppy was at like a seven, then your puppy is an eight or nine as an adolescent. And then we'll probably go down and be a nice five as an adult. So that's normal for adolescent dogs to actually need more exercise and more entertainment than puppies need. And so I think what you're probably seeing is that the dog's needs, like you've kind of backed off on the constant entertainment because the dog's not a puppy anymore. And when, what you need to be doing is actually increasing that constant entertainment. So yes, I would be managing to try to prevent this from occurring, But I would also be upping that exercise and upping your training sessions. I would do a ton of training sessions surrounding toys and toy play so that it is a very cooperative thing that the dog maybe wants to bring you toys rather than consume them because you have such a nice time playing together with toys. So I'd be increasing that enrichment. I'd also be offering shredding types of enrichment. So things that the dog gets to shred and pick apart and maybe even eat would be something that i would do a lot of and essentially ride this out while increasing your training increasing your management and when it happens you know that's a situation where i might i would hope to maybe have the dog in a long line so i could just kind of reel the dog in and do a trade but if i didn't have the dog on a long line i would be weighing my outcomes i would be saying you know is this dog actually going to cause an obstruction Or am I just gonna cause a lot of damage by removing things from the dog's mouth constantly? More people cause that damage in, you know, I think obviously, I don't have hard data on this, but in my career more people have caused that kind of relationship damage by constantly ripping things out of the dog's mouth potentially even creating a resource guarding issue than people who actually have dogs eat something that's bad for them or you know which is common as well so you want to always be weighing your odds there so best of luck alexa and um do let us know how it progresses for you Next one is from Brittany who writes, my 10 month old Sheltie recently started to chase bicycles after encountering many while hiking in Washington. She has also started to think about chasing cars and I can see her freezing and staring at them. I know she's a herding dog and wants to chase things but I'm obviously concerned for her safety. I'm currently avoiding areas with bicycles when we walk but sometimes they sneak up on me. Can you share some general training thoughts or ideas on how to manage this behavior? Is desensitization and counterconditioning likely to be successful if implemented or is this one of those hardwired things that's harder to counter? So, Brittany, I think you know that I've never had a sheltie, but I have had Border Collies for a very long time and I have had very few Border Collies that did not want to do this. So most of them wanted to chase cars and bicycles, especially right around the age that you are stating sometimes they want to do it earlier even earlier than that felix is a very tiny baby wanted to chase uh, cyclists and joggers and then i had my first border collie kelso actually at the ripe old age of 10 weeks was really lunging at and charging cars the number one thing i do is avoid the pattern because the pattern is in and of itself highly reinforcing to the dog so if the dog feels that they got to express any kind of control on the moving objects then that behavior is highly highly reinforced so you do want to avoid rehearsing that behavior in in any way which it sounds like you are trying to do and then i would go a desensitization route rather than trying to counter condition so i would not try to counter condition it but i would do some low level exposure that gets built up so basically if you can find yourself a field that's adjacent to a busy street but you can get really nice and far away from that busy street and have the dog just kind of be there maybe scenting through the grass for some cookies it's basically dog park tv but with cars um same thing if you can find a a busy bike path that um I tried to say trail and path at the same time. It didn't work out. Um, So if you can find a busy bike path that you can be far enough away that she can look at it and then maybe look back at you um maybe again snuffle some food out of the grass even do some pattern feeding that's more what I would be doing and then if a bike does sneak up on you your only job here is damage control so I would be trying to stop her from from exhibiting any hurting behaviors on the bicycle and I would go so far as to pick her up if if you needed to to stop that behavior from happening good luck Brittany this next one comes from Lindsay, who writes I have a five year old wine runner and just got a Labrador puppy. Do you use the same marker cue for multiple dogs? I say good for my wine, followed by food or toy. Thanks. So, Lindsay, It really depends on your situation and what you need. I have eight dogs, so if I said, if I had a universal cue that meant we're all eating, that could cause kind of mass chaos. I do not use marker cues really in day-to-day living with my dogs. I use them in training. So I use them when I'm actively training something, I'm gonna use one of my hard-earned marker cues that I have trained discrimination on and the dog truly understands. Otherwise, I'm just kind of generically praising and I will usually use the dog's name before feeding so that my dogs recognize their name as a cue to take reinforcement um, in a lot of different scenarios. So if my dogs are all in the same space and one of them chooses to do something really smart and I want to reward that dog, I'm going to say that dog's name and then I'm going to deliver food. So a really good example might be we're on a trail and um a horse is passing us or a cyclist or something and we're pulled over i'm gonna say a dog's name who's who just made a really smart decision to maybe disengage that trigger or sniff the ground and then i'm gonna feed that dog same as if all of the dogs approach me at once on the trail i'm not just going to i'm not going to say yes and then proceed to feed all of them because the one that got fed last uh, might feel frustrated that they heard yes, didn't eat right away, et cetera. There are a lot of things that can go wrong there. So I just use their name. But then my training marker cues, they are the same dog to dog because I cannot remember a different system for every single dog that I train. So those are the same, but I'm never going to say, you know, yes, and have two dogs go for the same food or the same toy in that situation because they're not together in that situation. So I hope that helps. Next one is from Kathy and there's a lot of background here. So I'm going to shorten it up. And basically say that Kathy's got a three-year-old border collie named Poppy. Um, Poppy is three and was rescued 18 months ago. So Kathy has only had the dog for approximately, you know, a year and a half. And the dog is got a really common thing Border Collies have, which is that she is obsessed with water. So she will bite at splashes in water, barking really frantically. She will not come out of water voluntarily. Um, she only exits the water when she's completely exhausted. And Kathy spends a lot of time outdoors on the water near the water. And so this is kind of a huge problem. <laughs> Here's the, And then Kathy kind of boils it down to say, do you think this is something that we can likely ever accomplish, relaxation and ability to enjoy being in and around water? How would you suggest we work toward that? Should I continue to keep her out of the water while we work on this or allow some s- swimming, playing in the creek and ponds on a long line to help her leave it? So Kathy, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> um, the bad news is... I know very very few people who have actually truly gone from the dog being obsessed with water to the dog being truly relaxed around water. So that's the bad news. The good news is though there's a lot you can do. There's a lot that you can do to help change this situation. So I want you to understand that this is usually kind of a an obsessive compulsive type of behavior pattern in this breed. And I'm saying that at risk of a lot of people kind of attacking me for using that phrase. So just understand that I understand why that's a little bit problematic, all of you people who just started writing me an email. And and hear me out. These dogs want to obsess about something. They're hardwired to be obsessive. And so sometimes water... Uh, becomes the thing that they obsess about. And it's really easy to have that happen. And the reason it's easy is because every time they touch it, it moves. So it's highly, it's, it's this very cyclical, I bite it, it makes more splashes, I bite it again, it makes more splashes kind of situation. The danger with this is that dogs die of water intoxication doing this. I know way too many dogs that have died this way. Dogs that belong to good people, smart people who were paying attention. So everybody kind of thinks th- that this won't happen to them. Trust me, it it could happen to anybody. So you want to be educate yourself a little bit on water intoxication so that you know what that is and you know what the signs are. And then recognize that it's almost like an addiction, okay? So that means that no, it cannot be practiced. So allowing the dog to do it sometimes and not other times is kind of like you're you're going to quit smoking, but you just got to have that one cigarette at lunch with your friends every day at work. You're never going to quit smoking if you do that. You will never quit if you have that one cigarette, if you're truly addicted. And so it's similar to that in my mind, and I would not allow for any water splashing or biting. I would control it by using I would I would have the dog be genuinely free away from water uh, as much as possible so lots and lots of exercise and then I would use a long line to remove the dog from the water rather than asking the dog to leave the water because like you said she's not listening and I'm going to wager that she can't that she can't actually even hear you when she's in that state of biting at the water. And then there are a few ways that you could go. Some people would suggest that you utilize the PREMAC principle here and get control and then release the dog to, to bite the water. I don't love that because it, again, feels like having that cigarette at lunch. It feels like uh, we're feeding that addiction sometimes. So that's not uh, my preferred. I would be doing. I would be attempting to do some desensitization, and to be honest, if this was a huge problem for me, I would be reaching out to a veterinary behaviorist to potentially get some pharmaceutical help on board. And I know nobody likes to hear that, but trust me, I don't think of meds as a last resort, and I think we all need to move on from that way of thinking. Meds should actually be part of your first line of defense when you have a serious issue that is um, potentially affecting quality of life. So. If you're slowly making some progress, um, as Kathy mentioned that she's utilizing some behavior change protocols that she's slowly making some progress with, keep doing that. But do make sure that the dog is exhibiting um, truly relaxed behavior rather than just kind of tense and eating behavior. So eating, listening, but still very tense is not what we want, which is why I would go a desensitization route instead, which is there's a calm lake right there that is there's no waves on it and it's far enough away that you can see it but you can show me relaxed behaviors and then maybe tomorrow we're going to get 10 feet closer to it. Is that a huge really hard long thing to work out? Yeah it is which is why um, any of you are listening that have young border collies do not encourage water biting. Do not um, think it's cute and encourage it and play with it because it can become this very, very serious behavior. And I even, I have had client dogs who attacked other dogs that were in water because they were almost resource guarding the water or whatever. It can grow into such an issue. And there are a lot of people who have Border Collies who do this, who I like, my Border Collies love to bite at the water that comes out of the hose. And they're like, what's the problem, Sarah? Until you've seen the dogs that are truly, that truly have an obsessive compulsive disorder surrounding this, then you may not understand what the problem is. Or until you have a a scare with water intoxication, you may not understand how big of a problem this is. But, you know, hear me out. Take it seriously. It is a problem. Um, I would talk to a veterinary behaviorist, and I would go a desensitization route, and I would avoid water in the meantime. And, you know, power to you. I know you didn't have this dog as a puppy, and you did not build this behavior. This behavior showed up for you, and it's a hard one to work on. So, Godspeed (laughs) is what I want to say. Um, let's see. And the last one I will address is from Robin who writes, I have a nine-year-old cavoodle that I am teaching to walk backwards for a tricks trial. She has to reverse three body lengths. She's physically very fit and walks back for, backwards very well if I walk towards her. The problem is if I'm standing back and use her back verbal, she will only do two or three steps, then stops and will just stop there or drop. I'm using a mat and clicking when she steps back onto it, but cannot get past the first few steps. She seems to know the verbal to start with, but has no idea when she gets further away, which I interpret to mean she does not know the command at all. Should I be using a continuation marker like good or issuing further back commands to get her to continue? I'm using a hand signal as well. Could this be confusing her? So Robin, you have a lot of questions here. It all boils down to it's a shaping issue. So it is a training problem, which means that. Using a keep going signal, um, you're calling it a continuation marker here, it's a keep going signal will not fix the shaping problem and neither will giving more commands or changing your cues. It is a shaping problem, you want to be splitting that backwards walking and you want to be volleying your difficulty. So what that means is you might click for two steps back and then do a couple reps of one step back and then try for another two steps back and then back down to one and then maybe try three. So you're going back and forth and back and forth as you're pushing and pushing and pushing. It's a complex behavior to get and shaping is certainly, you know, it's complicated. And when you struggle, when you have problems with it, it's there are, there's a flow chart of answers that I can't impart all of them to you. I would also consider you know, changing your method. Do you have the shaping skills to walk the dog to, I'm sorry, train the dog to walk backwards for that far? Or do you want to adjust your antecedents a little bit to help you? So a lot of people will use maybe an X-pen against a wall um, and have the dog back up through the X-pen to to basically get out I would obviously don't do that if that makes a dog worried or anything like that some people straight up lure the behavior some people just set it up to where the dog maybe go- gets itself into a into a corner to eat a cookie and then it needs to walk backwards to get out and you're going to click that walk backwards and then put another cookie in the corner that sort of thing If you want to continue to shape it, I recommend videoing your sessions, slowing them down, finding out where does the dog actually slow to stop? Where does the dog change its body to start to come to that stopping place? And you want to be clicking before that happens. It's very likely you're actually clicking the stop. And so the dog believes that the stop is what is getting the food. Best of luck, Robin. And that's it for this week. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cogdogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dogs, so that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.